It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Guys, we are experiencing our first white, well, not white Christmas, white days here in Washington, D.C. You know, happy snow Macron, as we are calling it. No, I'm sorry. I got to object to the... Washington habit of naming minor snowstorms. This is not a minor snowstorm. It's like, this is not a named, I mean, you know, Hurricane Superstorm Sandy. Okay, it gets a name. But naming a snowstorm of like five inches is the ultimate expression of Washington silliness. It's more than five inches. I think it's like eight to ten. All right, then eight. I'm sorry. In... in, <laughs> In Toronto, they are laughing at us. In Quebec City, they are laughing at us. In Syracuse, New York, they are snickering at us. It It is terrible that we have to, like, name storms like this. As someone from the, uh, not the north, but perhaps the northern mid-Atlantic, I will often defend D.C. from charges of, you know, not being prepared for snow. We don't get a lot of it. It's not in the city budget. Okay. However, the city's failure to do much of anything, at least in my neighborhood, to clear the snow off intersections and the state of Virginia's apparently total failure to prepare a large stretch of I-95 for the snow is pretty ridiculous. I will say this, if nothing else, the whatever the volume of snow, we are able to turn it into a pretty emergency pretty readily in this uh, pleasantly border southern uh, region of ours. Uh, and so, you know, certainly in terms of consequences, I think it feels very blizzard-like. Southern efficiency and northern charm, baby. <clears throat> And hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security, the return of the king, because I am here today with my co-host, Quinta Jurassic. Hello, Quinta. Hello. I am not the king, in case you were wondering. Well, you are not, nor is our absent co-host, Alan Rosenstein, who is off in more southern, less snowy climes, who has been decidedly dethroned in favor of the once and future king, former Rational Security co-host, Benjamin Wittes. Ben, thank you for joining us here today. I am thrilled to be back, and uh, I will rule benevolently, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) I have a slightly embarrassing confession. Uh, I wanted to bring you on for what I thought was our 20th episode, and only uh, about 10 minutes ago did I realize I badly miscounted what number episode this is. In fact, this is episode 18 of the Rational Security 2.0. Lucky number 18. There's still a milestone. Not as quite as a big round of milestone. I think 18 is, uh, it reflects my age. It reflects uh, <laughs> a, a lot of important things. So uh, I'm happy to be here for the 18th episode. 
Well, we are very happy to have you here for the Snomicron edition, because we are here, of course, beset not by just one, but by two blizzards, one of flaky white frost on the outside, and the other by the blizzard of friends and colleagues and loved ones, all of whom are sick with the latest iteration of the coronavirus. But in spite of this, we have come together to talk through some of the week's biggest national security stories with you, including topic one. Merrick's briefing. Later this week, Attorney General Merrick Garland is expected to give a speech about the Justice Department's efforts to hold the perpetrators of the January 6th insurrection accountable. What do we expect him to say, and what should he say? Topic two, the company you keep. Former President Trump recently endorsed Prime Minister Viktor Orban of Hungary for re-election, despite concerns over the latter's dictatorial tendencies. What does this tell us about former President Trump? his view of the world, and what does it mean for Viktor Orban moving forward? And topic three, it's a new extradition, hot and fresh out the kitchen. Yes, that is oh. a, a reference a reference to a uh, notable, horrendous human being, Robert Sylvester Kelly, which I kind of regret, but nonetheless, it seems <laughs> fix, fix the rhyme pattern, if nothing else. We recently received news of a very notable extradition of a, a Russian individual with close ties to Vladimir Putin's intelligence network, one Vladislav Klyushin, who is currently on his way to federal court in Boston, I believe, where he may be disclosing information about a variety of Russian intelligence operations, including interference with the 2016 elections. What should we expect to learn from Mr. Klyushin? And what do his actions tell us about Russia's uh, relative strengths and weaknesses in the intelligence realm. With that, let me turn it over to topic number one. As I mentioned uh, in the introductory remarks, later this week on January 5th, on Wednesday, we are expecting to hear Attorney General Merrick Garland make a set of remarks where he is going to lay out the case for the strategy that his Justice Department has been pursuing in regards to trying to hold the perpetrators of the January 6th insurrection and those otherwise connected with them, whether motivating their actions, supporting their actions, accountable for their actions. You guys have both actually wrote about this topic just this past week, making the case that uh, the attorney general needs to be more outspoken along the lines of the predecessor he cites most frequently, Ed Levy. What should we expect to hear from Merrick Garland this Wednesday? And what do we want to hear? Should we want to hear, but maybe shouldn't expect it for reasons regarding the Justice Department strategy and perhaps the Attorney General's own inclinations? Ben, I know you have followed, obviously, Merrick Garland for, for many years or many phases of his career. Why don't you get us started? Yeah. So I was cheered to see this announcement that the Attorney General would be giving a speech uh, on uh, Wednesday and specifically giving a speech to the staff on the Justice Department's commitments with respect to protecting democracy. Uh, Garland has come under a lot of criticism, some of it unfair in my view, and some of it may be fair but premature, and uh, some of it fair for the relative uh, quietness of the Justice Department in pursuing post Trump accountability matters. Andrew Kent and Quinta and I wrote a piece a week or two ago 
saying, hey, what he really needs to do is talk about stuff and explain how the Justice Department is thinking about these uh, these cases and these questions, and particularly a series of, I think, very important issues that I don't really see a reason why he can't address involving uh, what their basic attitude is toward prosecuting matters that may not have obvious precedent uh, in the Justice Department's history, whether he addresses those in a substantial way, in a glancing way or not at all, uh, I'm not sure, obviously. But I do think it's an encouraging sign that he is actually going to break what has been a relatively quiet first year in office for him and say something about the issues that everybody's thinking about. So I think it's a it's a positive development, but obviously it depends a lot on uh, how anodyne or communicative the actual speech itself is. One of the points in our piece that I think we were really building the argument around was based on this research that Andrew and Ben have been doing on Edward Levy, who, as you noted, Scott, is the predecessor as attorney general that Garland seems to really use as a touchstone and who was the attorney general who sort of was really trying to overhaul the Justice Department culture from the ground up after Watergate. And what Ben and Andrew were noting is that Levy talked a lot about what his vision of the Justice Department was and what impartial justice looked like and how they should refashion the institution. And so part of the point that we're trying to make is that, you know, one of the big lessons I think that we've seen following Trump's uh, abuses of the Justice Department is that the vast majority of people really don't have an understanding of what independent federal law enforcement is or means, why it's important, why it's a problem when the president starts, you know, putting pressure on the FBI director, for example, to drop investigations into his friends or start investigations into his enemies. And so in a perfect world, I would love to see this speech as an example of Garland kind of taking that up and playing the role of explaining what he's doing to the public. Now, granted, I think he's he's fashioning this speech as a speech to Justice Department officials. So it's an internal address. It's not, you know, an address to the American people. But nevertheless, I think it's, uh, it'll be very telling what he says. I mean, I, I think one of the criticisms of Garland that I think has some merit, you know, a, a lot of people, particularly, uh, and it's actually cross uh, a lot of ideological landscape, have been criticizing the attorney general because there have not been indictments of the key people they think are important to indict, most particularly Donald Trump. Now, this is almost certainly unfair in the sense that you actually don't know whether the reason these cases haven't materialized is A, that they've they've looked at them and concluded that they're is not a basis to bring the case, which would be a professional judgment uh, that you know you could argue with or you could accept, but presumably could be argued, right? Or secondly, that it hasn't materialized because they haven't brought the case yet. That is, they're working on it 
and it's actually going to happen two weeks from Tuesday. It just hasn't happened yet. Well, those are very different things, right? And we don't actually know which landscape we're looking at. Uh, one of the things that a speech like this can do is it can answer some of the antecedent questions to assure people that the question is even being looked at at all. You know, it's very improper for the attorney general to talk about a specific case pre-indictment, but it is not improper to say the prior administration closed some matters we think prematurely and we are looking at those. You know, that would be a, a very significant thing for the attorney general to say, and I think it would address a lot of people's anxieties that some of these matters aren't being looked at at all because Bill Barr closed them, particularly the Mueller report matters. We've heard nothing from this administration about what the disposition of those cases are going to be, who's looking at them, are they even being looked at at all? And there's no reason why the attorney general cannot give some kind of roadmap to you know, how we should understand the status of such matters. You know, it, it strikes me that when we think of what the Justice Department has done over the last year, just shy of a year that that the attorney general has been there, you know, we are a couple actually buckets of significant activity. We have the accountability for January 6th, mostly on the criminal side, almost entirely on the criminal side. That's notable, right? And there's a lot of questions about that. And you can pull in, if you want to expand the scope past January 6th, pull in other kind of questionable conduct relating to the Trump administration era um, that may fall in the criminal realm. Then you have DOJ internal management. I think something that's a real concern to us, this is where the parallel with Ed Levy, it seems like the clearest in place. You know, that was a lot of his focus of his rhetoric, as I understand it, mostly from your writing and talking about it with you, is this idea that we're trying to reestablish the Justice Department and an understanding and pride in its role and reinforce that through, among other vehicles, public announcement, public articulation and uh, promulgation of these norms. A third part of this actually, I think, is the area where the Justice Department has kind of been more active because its hand has been forced by certain litigation and other matters is actually a similar endeavor for the executive branch writ a little bit more broadly, particularly around executive privilege issues, around kind of ironing out some of these issues that have come up in the context of January 6th investigation that really bear on much broader issues and are fit much more in the civil realm, uh, that's not even really describing it adequately. It's really is about executive branches' views of the law that have arguably like a lot broader ramifications because they bear on a lot of core equities here. Is there something about the posture of this address that we should expect one of these to fit in better or not? It seems like he's focusing on the first bucket. Maybe he should be focusing on the second bucket. The third bucket isn't really fitting into the picture, but maybe that's wrong. I think we don't know. So the, the speech is being cast... And I guess many people will hear this podcast after the speech has been given. So the listener may know more than, than we do. But the speech has been cast as a speech about the Justice Department's commitment to democracy protection. And so that could include a fourth bucket, which is remedies and actions against states and state legislatures and state elections administrators that play games to uh, uh, prevent, you know, people from voting or from 
uh, certifying elections uh, properly. And so I think it could theoretically, you know, range a great deal in subject matter and could cover any or not much of your of, of, of the baskets you've laid out. The key thing to me is that if he if he doesn't address the questions that people have about how the Justice Department is thinking about post post Trump era accountability, and the Justice Department has a much better story to tell about one six particularly where they've indicted seven hundred plus people than it does on the post Trump era accountability stuff. If he doesn't address that. He's going to be subject to substantial criticism that they've just kind of written it off. And I think that would be a mistake on his part, particularly if it's not true. It does strike me, Ben, that maybe part of what this speech might be able to do is kind of knit together the January 6th response to post-Trump accountability more broadly. And you can see that in two ways. One is saying, well, we've brought charges against 725 people or whatever it's at now. So isn't that enough for you? Obviously, he wouldn't say it in those words. Or we've brought charges against 725 people. That's a sign of how serious we are about this and we're going to keep working on it. Does that does that sound right? Because I do think that the the riot prosecutions and the broader accountability questions have taken kind of separate tracks in the public discussion, even though they are obviously linked. So I think, maybe not in this speech, but at some point soon, he needs to answer the question of the Mueller report. And there are several possible answers to that question, right? There is, Bill Barr closed it, and we don't reopen invest matters without new in- information as a general matter at the Justice Department. That would be the super conservative institutionalist way to think about it. He could say, uh, Bill Barr closed it, and without a very good reason, I wouldn't reopen it. He'd get a lot of criticism for that. He could say, we've taken a look and closed it ourselves. There'd be no reason he couldn't. Or he could say, Bill Barr closed it, we reopen it, and there's an active investigation, or there's a it's a matter under consideration, and I can't discuss it. I don't think he cannot say what happened in the long run. Again, I don't think this is something he necessarily has to do tomorrow, but I don't think in the long run he cannot answer the question of what happened to volume two of the Mueller report, given the examples, the evidence of obstruction of justice that are in there and the genuine integrity questions about the manner in which those were closed by Barr. And to clarify, I think that part of what we're saying in our piece is that the Mueller report issue is particularly timely now because uh, the statute of limitations is going to start to expire on the various potential instances of obstruction. So the the first one runns out in February 2022. So uh, the clock is ticking. Well, let me ask you guys this. I mean, 
Is a speech going to be enough? Is it more useful other than a sign that there's going to be movement in this direction? Um, you know, this idea that speeches can help reinforce norms, I think, is certainly true, um, but it relies upon you know, in the institutional embrace of those norms, uh, a building of the social structures that kind of reinforce them, right? And it really doesn't stand alone. Uh, you know, we've seen, and I, and I think the Attorney General recognizes that, right? Like we saw the Attorney General pretty early in the Biden administration say, hey, I'm ruling out, rolling out, excuse me, this new set of principles kind of governing how the Justice Department is going to engage with the White House. There was talk about trying to roll those into the Justice Manual, essentially make them, you know, uh, regulatory or at least quasi-regulatory guidelines for the Justice Department. That puts up some more procedural barriers. But I don't know how much more action we've seen around that, around these broader legal questions that brought up that are brought up in this context. You know, outside the context of specific prosecutions, you're really talking about democracy promotion and improving the Justice Department's commitment to rule of law. You know, you would want to see or need to see some of these broader conversations result, I would think, in some specific policy measures. We haven't really seen that yet. What I think is most interesting, actually, is like we actually haven't even seen the Biden administration do with the Office of Legal Counsel what the Obama administration did or to some extent the Trump administration did, which is come in and say, hey, we're going to do a scrub of some of these old OLC opinions. Uh, this particularly happened early in the Obama administration. It actually happened at the end of the Bush administration, I say Bush too, where you saw a number of opinions from the immediate post-9-11 era get rescinded or get qualified or conditioned through an internal memo that was later released during the Obama administration. And you know, usually you see a kind of reckoning with some of these views, and I would kind of expect that because so many of the Trump administration's views about McGahn testimony and other certainly investigatory aspects raised so many questions. Instead, all we really saw was like one OLC opinion that kind of about, I think this was about the Ways and Means request um, for certain Trump records that made a, frankly, pretty flimsy factual distinction from the prior Trump era opinion to reach the alternate outcome, um, which, you know, I, I think is a suboptimal in terms of creating new standards uh, of approaching these sorts of issues. So, you know, where else should we be looking for the Garland Justice Department to actually be pursuing some of this activity? We're going to see the speech on Wednesday. Maybe it will or won't check some of these boxes. But what is it we actually need to be watching in the months to come for progress? So first of all, on the OLC side, I would not read the absence of a wholesale paper shredding at OLC as very much right now because the people at OLC are very aware that, that a lot of the big issues are in court. And so there is no point in tearing up an OLC opinion and then writing a new one if you may be about to get a Supreme Court opinion or a DC Circuit opinion that gives you material to work with. So the executive privilege DC Circuit case in Thompson is a good example of this. You know, OLC could have rewritten an opinion pre-Thompson. Why would it? Why not wait until the D.C. Circuit has has ruled, the Supreme Court has ruled in cert in, in a, on cert in it, and then you actually get to base a new opinion on some more stable law, as well as the fact that the D.C. Circuit forces you to do it. And I think that there are a variety of issues involving relations with Congress in particular, where because of the general institutional caution that the Justice Department has about tearing up OLC opinions in the absence of intervening events, knowing that events are going to intervene 
actually gives you uh, a, a good reason to be cautious and you end up in the same place, which is three years later, a whole bunch of new law has been made and a bunch of new OLC opinions have been written in response. All I'll say to that is I think it's a notable trend that in the last post-election period of the Trump administration, we all saw them actually release. I was just trying to count it up here. But my my, my count, it looks like almost a dozen Trump-era OLC opinions, ranging on things from treaty withdrawal to a variety of things related to investigations, um, some interpretation of like Title IX statute, a sort of other things of which there is like, frankly, I think a reason why these opinions were released within the discretion of the Trump Justice Department, that is to lay down a marker um, for particular legal views that make them accessible to future administrations that share the views of the Trump administration. I think that's something that the Garland Justice Department is going to have to deal with at some point. And not all of them come up in litigation. I agree with that. The question is whether there are issues you have to deal with in the first few months of an administration or whether you deal with it as the issues come up over the course of four years. And the traditional way you deal with an OLC opinion is, you know, you deal with the issue as it arises and the extant OLC law, not you walk in and you say, okay, let's let's tear up every OLC opinion the prior administration did that we disagree with. Now, the end of the Bush administration was a bit of an exception there, but those involved almost entirely issues that would never be litigated. Um, there are issues that are particular to CIA, the law of covert actions, and these kind of areas where they tend to get decided within the executive branch. And they so I do think there was a bit of a shredding party in the beginning of the Obama administration. But I that's not the norm. And I I do think the I think you have to wait four years and say how much of the Trump era stuff survives for the entirety of the Obama, of the Biden administration, not how much of it do you lose in the first year. That's a fair point. So one very traditional power of, of the presidency, uh, and it's actually specified in a little known clause of Article 2, is the power to endorse uh, in Hungarian elections. And unlike all the other Article II powers, this one actually resides in the former president as well as the current president. Not unlike executive privilege, ben, exactly. as the Supreme Court will soon explain to us. It's exa- exactly. And so when Donald Trump on January 3rd, 2022, issued a press release entitled Endorsement of Prime Minister Viktor Orban, The only untraditional thing about this was that he uh, blew the name of the Hungarian prime minister, which in Hungarian, the surname comes first. So he really should have said endorsement of prime minister Orban Victor. No, in all seriousness, this was an unusual uh, press release. It reads, uh, Victor Orban of Hungary truly loves his country and wants safety for his people. He has done a powerful and wonderful job in protecting Hungary, stopping illegal immigration, creating jobs, trade, and should be allowed to continue to do so in the upcoming election. He is a strong leader and respected by all. He has my complete support and endorsement for re-election as prime minister, exclamation mark, and for those in Hungary who are moved by that, there is an important donate 
button underneath in the in the press release, which I I think may be part of the point. So um, the question is, uh, why is Donald Trump reviving this little known presidential power of endorsement in Hungarian prime ministerial elections? The Trump-Orban alliance, friendship, romance, whatever you want to call it, is one of the weirder subplots of the last few years uh, on the American right. So Hungary under Orban, which has become, I think it's fair to say, an increasingly authoritarian state, has really held itself out as a, a model for American conservatives and and those on the the farther right as a kind of example of what you can do if you toss aside, you know, pesky old liberalism and truly govern for the people. So it wasn't hugely surprising to me to see Trump sort of extending a hand to Orban in this way. I do wonder how much Trump's endorsement is actually going to make a a difference. I mean, how many Hungarians are there who will see Trump's endorsement and change their votes. And I don't say that entirely flippantly. Like, I actually am curious in part because so Orban has been in power for quite a few years now, I think over a decade. And my understanding is that he's actually facing some peril in this upcoming election. So his party, Fidesz, is sort of under siege from a coalition of parties that span from the left to the far right, like the really, really, really far right, who are all sort of jockeying to get Orban out of power and loosen his increasingly dictatorial control over the Hungarian state. And so I I do wonder if this will make a difference for Orban in the upcoming election. I think that's a really good question. I mean, there's two different angles, you know, there's like the wily Trump you can pursue on this and the kind of the instinct Trump, right? The wily Trump says that this is part of his broader effort to form this kind of like transnational, nationalist, chauvinistic sort of alliance between all these like-minded figures. And there's maybe some element of that, but you could see strategic behavior that leans more into that, like things the Russian government has been doing for the last, you know, eight or more years, building that capacity that you don't really see the Trump people leaning into so deliberately on multiple fronts. I think a good part of this explanation here might be personal because uh, Viktor Orban endorsed Donald Trump twice, 2016 and 2020, right? And we know Trump has this very personal view of politics and a deep sense of like personal loyalty, for lack of a better way to say it, saying, you scratch my back, I will scratch yours. And that's kind of an ongoing bond that he sees as fairly important. I think that's been a pretty consistent trend of his. So I won't be surprised if this feeds into that. As to why you know this might be useful for Orban, I actually think that Ben's point about the donate money actually might be kind of the right one. I don't know exactly how foreign money fits into the Hungarian election scheme, um, but certainly a degree of international support, international attention from certain circles might help bolster him, provide support for different types of activities that may play in. And maybe Donald Trump has that personal cachet in, hung- in Hungary. We know he does in certain other countries, like you know Israel has a very high public opinion of Donald Trump in Israel and a few other countries feel the same way. That's possible. I, I don't know off the top of my head. But I think this may be one of those things that we may be reading into a little bit too much because I think it may be more personally driven by Trump than strategically. 
I, I will say, I do think it's notable that, you know, they are able to build this connection between their worldviews, between their political movements, because they situate themselves in opposition to kind of like a liberal mainstream. And it makes them kind of different than other dictators, right? Like you saw Trump flirt with Duarte. You saw him have this like very weird relationship with Erdogan, where Erdogan like kind of owned him repeatedly and was able to t- understood their dynamic and used it to full effect by getting concessions out of Trump that no other president would have given, frankly, uh, particularly in relation to Syria. And so, you know, you are uh, seeing this sort of weird dynamic, but for Orban and Trump, they're much more fellow travelers. It's not just about being dictator. It's about being a controversial, chauvinistic, nationalistic figure in the face of what is seen as a more liberal you know, progressive-ish orthodoxy. And that's something they really feed off of. And part of the reason I think you see that enduring relationship, even if it's not fully at a strategic level, some of it's instinctual, as I suspect is the case here. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I actually think, uh, jokes aside, that that is the key point. So. The history of Fidesz here is actually interesting. Fidesz began as a, a a sort of Hungarian, you know, traditional conservative party modeled very uh, explicitly on the Republican Party and the British Conservative Party. Uh, Orban was a student in England um, and was a fan of Margaret Thatcher and you know, kind of Reagan-Bush conservatism. And Fidesz was a, you know, initially a liberal party in the conservative mold. And it is only when he lost power and then regained it uh, that his current uh, kind of post-conservative, what he calls illiberal democracy, uh, which is really a a very Trumpy model. It's nationalistic, it's anti-foreign, it's uh, it mixes business interests with political interests. It's clientelistic, and it is oppressive with respect to dissenters. Well, all of those things are actually very philosophically close to what Trump has tried to do with the actual Republican Party, and so I think you know whether either of them, and I'm sure. Orban, who is a smart guy, I'm sure Orban does understand this, that there is a deep connection here. Fidesz was modeled after, you know, kind of the Republican and the conservative parties, and then broke from that in a direction of more populist nationalism. And the Republican Party has followed this little 
this little offshoot of it. Uh, now, I don't think Trump was aware of Orban when he did this, but I do think they see themselves in one another. And then, of course, there has been a very deliberate attraction and effort on the part of Fidesz and Orban to court the organs of Trumpism, um, particularly the most famous example of this is Tucker Carlson, who's become, you know, a, a fanboy for Orban. And, but he's not the only one. There are conferences that have been held in Budapest and, and you know, of these sort of what they call national conservative movements from around the world. And uh, the Republic, certain Republican elites have been very attracted to this. So I think the actual explanation for this is not cynical and not ironic, but is actually that they are philosophically fairly close. And, you know, just like the socialist international, you know, the left parties tend to support one another. The nationalist far right parties, you know, they they see each other when they look in the mirror. So CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, is actually planning, I guess, COVID permitting to hold its conference in Budapest. In... COVID will permit, I, I predict. Yeah, right. In, in the spring of, of 2022. So that tells you a lot about those ideological ties. I mean, I, I just want to give a shout out here to the another podcast, which is called Know Your Enemy, which is, has done a lot of really, really interesting work on the ties between Fidesz and the American far right. I will say, I mean, one one thing that I have gotten from their work on it is I sort of wonder how much the attraction to Orban among those on the American right is that in a way it's a smarter Trumpism. Um, and what I mean by that is that Orban is just a smarter guy and that there's a little bit more of an intellectual lineage. Um, this is a country that has been, uh, I think, pretty ethnically homogenous. It's smaller. So it's kind of easier to build an intellectual and ideological and philosophical foundation for a lot of the ideas that have sort of accreted around Trumpism, much easier than it is in the United States, where Trump is such an erratic figure that any given principle is, you know, something that he'll toss by the wayside the very next day. But I don't know if that necessarily translates to smarter or even more effective, right? Like we're we're seeing this moment where Orban appears to be in threat, and but not just internally in terms of political challenges, but also perhaps more importantly, externally has actually forced a kind of change in how the European Union itself is regulating its own members. For years, if he had been able to, you know, ride the tiger successfully of the political movement he was unleashing, he seemed to benefit from being in kind of a coalition with other right center right parties in broader Europe who were willing to say, look, there he, he's a little he's a little excessive in certain areas, but net, that's their own country's issues. We're going to do this. And now those people appear to have tossed him and his party to the sidelines. And, you know, to me, that says that this is a guy who has gotten over his skis a little bit and maybe underestimating his, uh, you know, degree of control and power in the situation. And contrast that with Trump, where Trump still appears to be a central figure in the Republican Party. People say presumptive nominee. That may be going a little too strong for 2024, but somebody who's certainly a realistic nominee if he wants to pursue that at this stage uh, and a still very influential figure with no real 
significant counterweight for like a whole side of the political spectrum. You know, I, I think maybe that ideological flexibility uh, and much more cult of personality actually may be a bit of a strength of the Trumpist movement. Although, you know, what that means for it as a movement, as opposed to something just built around an individual with a mortal lifespan and a passing historical, you know, uh, relevance. Uh, you know, that that's the real question: is 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 how durable is that as a shift? Is it actually a movement or or just a weird phenomenon around a guy? Although Orban, I think, ha- I mean, I will believe that Orban can lose an election the day he loses one and is Fair. actually removed from power. You know, there is effectively not independent media in Hungary anymore. You know, the road that he has gone down toward authoritarianism is far more developed than anything that Trump was ever able to do. And, you know, it's not it's not entirely clear to me that he can lose anymore. Um, he may be more in Lukashenko land than he is in Donald Trump land. I do think, Scott, that your your point about the European Union sort of bridling a little bit at the direction that Orban has gone is a is an interesting one. I mean, it, it of course the difference between Orban and Trump there is that the U.S. doesn't have to worry about pesky things like the European Union. So I wonder if we're seeing a scenario where Orban is less constrained domestically for all the reasons that Ben notes, but perhaps a little more constrained in terms of his his foreign policy and as to the direction that that takes the various movements in Hungary and the US, I don't really know. Speaking of taking things in a direction, let's go east from Hungary to Russia. How is that? Excellent. I love it. We're back in the segue zone. 2022, <laughs> year of the segue. I love it. If Shane Harris were dead, he'd be rolling in his grave. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Shane. Um, so, or we could we could also say west from Hungary to Switzerland, because that is the country from which a Russian national was extradited to the United States on December 18th in a case that may have some pretty interesting implications for not only U.S. foreign policy toward Russia, but also what we know about Russian election interference in 2016. So this is the case of Vladislav Klyushin. Uh, I hope I am pronouncing that correctly who has been indicted on uh, securities fraud and wire fraud uh, for a conspiracy that involves essentially accessing the computer systems of various U.S. entities uh, with which uh, companies filed their reports, which essentially gave uh, Cleotian and his merry band of co-conspirators the ability to have a little bit of a heads up on the stock market. And so they were able to engage in some good old securities fraud, according to the indictment uh, filed by the Department of Justice. So this might be just, you know, uh, a kind of a run of the mill case, albeit a bit of an interesting one, given that um, it does involve the extradition of a a Russian citizen. But there's an interesting twist here, which is that Klyushin's company is a technology company based in Moscow called M13. One of the employees of that company who is also uh, indicted is somebody whose name is uh, Ivan Yermakov, who also happens to be a former GRU official who was indicted for hacking various networks of democratic entities 
in the run-up to the 2016 election. And Bloomberg has a very interesting piece suggesting that perhaps this indictment might have something to do with ongoing U.S. efforts to find out more about what exactly Russia was up to, that Cleveland might know something. So there is a lot to dig in here. I'm curious, Ben, what you think about, you know, whether we should expect to perhaps learn new information about the 2016 election interference and on what time frame. And Scott, I'm also curious what you make of of the uses of the extradition system here, because there's some interesting stuff about uh, Russia and the United States both kind of pulling on on that rope. So maybe, Scott, let's go to you first. Sure. So this is a really interesting case from an extradition perspective, because you saw kind of competing extradition requests for Klyushin, um, where shortly after he was arrested, Russian authorities came in and filed extradition requests saying essentially, hey, we think he's guilty of fraud, extradite him to us. And this Bloomberg article notes that this is part of a pattern of activity. I actually didn't realize it was quite this specific uh, of cases where Russia has seen some of its nationals be arrested and potentially face extradition overseas and to try and get them back into Russian hands. They try and preempt with a quick extradition request based off of some sort of factual predicate. The uh, United States came about a week or two later with their own extradition request, uh, although seems quite likely given the fact that Klaushin was arrested by Swiss authorities after arriving very quietly into Switzerland, and the fact that some of his travel documents were actually included in some of the legal filings by the U.S. government, um, leading his lawyer, among others, to suspect that his phone had been hacked or other information had been hacked to facilitate this arrest. The United States was in touch with Swiss authorities well in advance of filing a formal extradition request. Um, but regardless, when they got the extradition request, Swiss courts rejected the Russian request and are processing uh, process the U.S. request. I think this tells us like some interesting things about the extradition system and, frankly, some interesting systemic strengths that the United States has in struggle with Russia that we've kind of lost track of a little bit in the Cold War, which is the benefit of our broad kind of cultural and social appeal and what that gives us in terms of economic and treaty relationships with other countries as well as interaction with Russian nationals. On the one hand, the United States is in a better position to actually facilitate extraditions from a lot of countries. Russia constantly is making extradition requests. It does Interpol red notices all the time for all sorts of political opponents and other people that are very rarely acted upon by other countries, even though extradition, frankly, doesn't have a super high threshold, which is could be its own problem in other cases. But uh, it doesn't, it act, is an act upon because they're not really taken seriously by a lot of other countries. They're seen as this effort to abuse this system to tamp down dissent and pursue other national objectives unrelated to law enforcement and the rule of law. The United States doesn't have that problem. Lots of things to object to be a U.S. justice system, criminal justice system, but most people take their extradition requests seriously and think they're actually about the underlying conduct and crime. In the vast majority of cases, you see the debate around the Assange uh, request is about like the furthest out, most controversial case the United States has had recently. And it really is about the underlying charges, even if you may think they shouldn't be criminal or, or unconstitutional. So there's that sort of appeal. The United States has this benefit, uh, and countries are going to be inclined to both lean towards that that are in Western Europe, that are in other parts of the world where they have effective democracies, uh, you know, parts of uh, Southeast Asia, parts of Africa, Latin America, because rule of law is actually important for a lot of these countries. It undergirds their you know, liberal, fairly capitalist economic sense in most cases, which the United States has strong ties with. Um, and they're all part of this like international community that if you start 
ignoring rule of law and filing these frivolous requests, it's harder to get access to those. So the United States kind of has a has a benefit there, an edge there over Russia. And that becomes important because those parts of the world are appealing to Russians because Russians want to go there because there is no Swiss skiing in Russia or within the domain that Russia is able to exercise influence over. Um, and so the fact that you had this Russian oligarch and he's not the first one going to a third party country where there is this risk of extradition is kind of notable. Um, now, it's worth noting this Bloomberg story suggests that may have been deliberate, that in fact, this is actually a, a subtle defection by this individual to the United States. So we should explore that further. Um, it's possible, but I think there are reasons to think it may not be quite that simple. But the overall dynamics really tell us that, you know, as long as there's this draw that's going to lure potentially controversial Russians and make them want to travel abroad, the United States can make it really dangerous for them to travel abroad as long as it can tie their conduct to criminal behavior. And that's that's something that's hard to do for the modern Russian government where criminal behavior is so intertwined with its foreign policy agenda and activities. Yeah, I think this case is important for two reasons, one of which is clear and the other of which is hypothetical. So the reason that's obvious and the obvious importance is related to the point that Scott made, which is, you know, we have made criminal indictment for things like hacking, state-sponsored hacking, an important feature of our policy. And that is exactly as effective as is our capacity to get control over people's bodies. Because if, you know, Bob Mueller issues an indictment of 32 Russians and we have custody of none of them, then the indictment is really a form of a very elaborate form of press release. But the moment somebody goes to Switzerland and finds themselves in federal court in Boston, the those kind of latent indictments, and and to be clear, uh, Mr. Clearshin was not covered by one of Bob Mueller's indictments. I'm just, uh, you know, those become these kind of uh, long-term time bombs that really do have impact on the individuals in question. You know, these cases have been relatively rare, but they're not unheard of. And every time they happen to somebody that the Russian government really cares about, it's important. And it, I think it does send a message to others, not necessarily don't do the lucrative hacking stuff, uh, because certainly lots of, of people are willing to do that anyway. But, you know, that there will be or maybe long term consequences for you in terms of your ability to put your money elsewhere in the world or travel elsewhere in the world. And I think the more comfortable we can make it for those people, the better. Uh, the second uh, thing that may be important about this case, and this one is more in the department of hypothetical, is if this guy is cooperating and he, in fact, knows important stuff, either about the 2016 election stuff or about something else, that's important. You want that kind of cooperation. And um, I don't think there's that much more to learn about the 2016 election, honestly. I mean, it would be neat to know uh, what happened to the poll data that Paul Manafort sent to the Russians. Um, but um, I don't think it's likely that this gentleman is likely to know that. And I think the evidence that we have a pretty good sense of what the Russians were up to, both on the social media side and on the hacking side, is pretty good. So I, I don't think that's likely to be 
where his value is, though I could be wrong about that. But anytime you have a potential high-level defector, whether it's a defector in the traditional sense or a defector in the sense of somebody who you're prosecuting who uh, cuts a deal and comes over and gives you evidence, uh, you know, that's a good thing. And this is somebody who is well positioned to know some stuff. And so I think it's, you know, definitely significant in the first incident. And, you know, if I were the State Department, I would be taking out ads on RT, uh, you know, uh, showing, you know, you too can get an exclusive Swiss chalet and a free trip to federal court in Boston, you know, I would be talking about this to uh, Russian audiences. It's not the first time this has happened, and with luck, it won't be the last. But uh, that's, you know, that's high value when you can do it. The the way that they were able to pick this guy up is is pretty incredible. I mean, it it does make me wonder about the element in that Bloomberg piece that you noted, Scott, uh, where the, the piece sort of suggests that perhaps this was all all part of the plan. Um, but it, I mean, it reminds me of an incident. I think midway through the Mueller investigation where a woman who was the accountant for the internet research agency, the troll farm, there was a a criminal complaint issued against her in such a way that it seemed like perhaps the government, the U.S. government thought they would have a chance to nab her and then lost it because she she's never in custody and I believe is is still a free woman in Russia as of this moment. Uh, So it is pretty impressive that the U.S. finally managed to pick someone up for what, whatever the mechanics were of getting there. Yeah, you know, I think this intersects with another topic that we have kind of hit on actually a number of times here on rational security, but I think it's worth flagging here, which is the intersection with the new hostage politics that we've seen kind of emerge because a response we saw the Russian government take when, I think even before the actual extradition, but instead when the, after he was arrested, is that in negotiations over efforts to secure the release of Trevor Reed and Paul Whelan, two former U.S. Marines who are being detained in Russia on on what many people many people see as fairly dubious uh, legal grounds, an effort to exchange them for a series of Russian nationals, including Victor Boot, like kind of notorious arms trader, has uh, been in U.S. custody for quite a while now, I think. The Russians came back and tried to throw this guy in with the deal, basically painting a kind of seeing this as a bargaining chip and using those two detained Americans as bargaining chips. And that does pose a bit of a problem for um, this strategy moving forward in that these countries like Russia, uh, there are a handful of others that engage in similar activity, China we've talked about in the past, you know, do not have a problem trumping up these sorts of criminal charges to detain, you know, friendly Americans or Canadians in the Chinese case and other folks um, and holding them on legal, fairly pretextual, clearly pretextual grounds as a sort of bargaining chip. And that's a really problematic behavior that's that's new-ish. It's not new in the historical sense, but it's new in terms of the last 20 or 30 years, not something we saw a lot of, a lot of outside of the context of maybe Iran and North Korea, a handful of prior states. And now we're seeing used more and more often by major powers. And it does make these detentions a little bit more difficult because A, Putin and others can spin to their domestic audiences, oh, we're just doing the same thing the Americans are doing. Look who they've tricked the Swiss into arresting on their behalf. Uh, and B, it gives them a demand for these sorts of bargaining chips. And there's going to be a real policy balancing act that needs to be struck, both in terms of how you approach engagement over these sorts of hostage scenarios uh, moving forward, which has been approached pretty ad hoc by the last few administrations. And frankly, as I've mentioned on the show before, I think 
the United States government needs to start thinking about how aggressively it tries to deter people from unnecessarily traveling to countries that engage in these practices, as otherwise they're allowing their own nationals to become bargaining chips in a race where they care a lot more about the lives of their nationals than these other countries often do, um, and the United States is at a disadvantage. Well, on that cheery note, we're almost out of time for this conversation. But of course, before we set you out about your week, we have a few object lessons to share with you. Quinta, why don't I turn it over to you to provide our first object lesson? My object lesson is also not cheery, but it is entertaining. It is a book. Uh, it is a novel called Intimacies by Katie Kitamura. It came out over the summer, but I only had time to read it over the holidays during my annual reading binge. And I would like to highly recommend it to listeners of Rational Security. Not only is it an excellent novel, but it is about a interpreter at the International Criminal Court who is sort of navigating a new assignment interpreting for a former West African president who is accused of war crimes. And there is a lot in there about uh, not only just, you know, what it's like to work in the court and the Hague, but the very tricky dynamics of whom the court prosecutes and how and how it chooses when to take or drop a case. So of interest, perhaps, to lawfare readers. It sounds a lot like that movie, The Interpreter, with Nicole Kidman from like 2005, but I'm guessing they are unrelated. I have not seen that, but I'm guessing it's different. Okay, good to know. Noted, noted. That would be a weird. That'd be a weird reverse this ripoff sort strike, of move. Yeah, no, this doesn't strike me as a Kidman-y type piece of intellectual property. Okay, all right, good to know. Good to know. Well, uh, I will open my object lesson with a bit of a caveat. There has been a lot of Muppet-related content on Rational Security related uh, recently. Not enough. I, I agree with you, and we're about to get one more dose. I don't intend to make this a regular thing, but but, but I do have Muppet related. Scott content. is our Muppet correspondent because uh, it's been it's been a week. Because well, I I have spent the, I have the, been the, enjoying the the regular Muppet contributions. I think I we think, should make it a segment. I think old old rational security did not have a lot of Muppet content, and I think that's it's certainly. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I like it better than uh, you know than than Alan's hand wringing about pasta. <laughs> <laughs> I I agree with that on both fronts. Um, and this particular bit of Muppet content, I will say, is, has come at a very valued uh, point for me uh, in that I spent the waiting days of 2021 and the opening days of 2022 doing that most 2021 slash 2022 activity, and that I've been sick as a dog with my wife and kids, also sick as dogs, trying to take care of our one year old without childcare because we can't get our nanny uh, sick as a dog during a snowstorm as well, just to layer that on top of it. So we're feeling very in the moment. And during my days when I'm desperately trying to get something done in some regard unrelated to taking care of my kid, and I'm trying to distract him so I can like type on my laptop for up to five or 10 minutes at a time without him walking over and mashing it with his little tiny hands, uh, I was scrolling through Disney Plus and discovered that they have the entire catalog of The Muppet Show from like 1979 through 1986 through 1981, I think was its run. That is just phenomenal. And I put it on and my little one-year-old kid, just a few days shy of his first birthday, is totally entranced, only for like five minutes at a time. Then he loses interest for 20 minutes. Then he comes back around to the point that after segments, he claps uh, after hearing the song end, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and it is just like such phenomenal, weird TV. Like, all their guests for the first season are all like appear to be like Broadway and stage actors. It's so great. 
It's so great. The first one was like a, a woman who's a, who's best known for being a dancer. I'm blanking on her name right now. And so her opening sequence with the Muppets, it's a seven minute long, entirely instrumental dance routine with five neon yellow giraffes, uh, Muppet giraffes that are kind of dancing around her. It's just phenomenal. Um, so if you love weird TV or if you have kids who, who you need to distract who also love weird TV, highly recommend The Muppet Show on Disney Plus uh, for this moment. I will do something more intellectual and substantive as soon as we start feeling better, I swear. But until then, Muppets all the way. More Muppets. Exactly. Exactly. All right. I have two object lessons. Uh, The first, I just want to say, I have been for a project that I am doing, reading a whole lot of counterintelligence history. And I recently came across a truly wonderful book uh, by Tom McIntyre called A Spy Among Friends, which is a history of Kim Philby in the context of a larger history of a friendship of his within the intelligence community. And it is a genuinely wonderful book. And for anybody who is interested in spy history, I think it's the best Philby book I have read. But it's also just a wonderful piece of intelligence history and intelligence writing. Uh, It has a genuinely surprising set of twists and turns. And among other things, I learned for the first time in my life about Kim Philby's father, who was a genuine uh, Lawrence of Arabia kind of figure, a real British eccentric who was the sort of principal Arabist of his era and became uh, very close and a, and a uh, a close advisor of uh, Ibn Saud in the founding of Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's just a fascinating book full of weird people and an unbelievable quantity of alcohol consumed. Ben, you may be interested to know, because I happened to spot this while I was uh, reading through some news items, there is actually a forthcoming BBC miniseries uh, that is uh, people are singing the advanced praises of based off that book, I think, in the next few months. So wow, I uh, am, stay tuned to the BBC international audience. Maybe it'll be I'm excited about the book is is genuinely wonderful. And some of it takes place in my neighborhood. So um, uh, the second thing I want to do is uh, roll logs on behalf of Lawfare's latest podcast, which is launching on Thursday. It is the third season of The Report, which we are calling The Aftermath. And it is the story of one year of uh, attempts to ensure accountability for the 1-6 insurrection. And uh, we have been hard at work about it. It's going to be hosted by our executive editor, Natalie Orpet. And here is a snippet of what is going to be released on Thursday. Uh, Is the objection in writing and signed by a senator? Yes, it is. It is. Back into the monument. Everyone's breaking through the bike rack. There's a large crowd that's following us. We're going back into the monument. They're breaking through the bike fence. We're inside. Uh, they're at the part of the gate. Around the same time as Congress gavels in, President Trump begins speaking to the crowd. He speaks for more than an hour. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, We're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. 
And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. This election were overturned by mere allegations from the losing side. Our democracy would enter a death spiral. We'd never see the whole nation accept an election again. It is during Trump's speech that the day begins to unravel. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. We have new information from NBC News. An explosive device has been located at the the headquarters of the Republican National Committee. The Democratic National Committee headquarters have now been evacuated. Yeah, so that is uh, the report. It has been a whole bunch of people have contributed to it. Uh, and it is going to be a limited series of indeterminate length. We're going we're gonna to cover a lot of stuff in it. Uh, and the first episode drops on Thursday. Well, I am certainly excited for that, as I know many are around the Lawfare offices and hopefully Lawfare listeners and readers as well. But until then, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will also find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we've discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at thelawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits. Please do follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And wherever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass them along to your loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Shatu of Goat Radio, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host Quinta and our special guest Benjamin Wittes, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 